Uh, welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. My name is Eugene Hernandez on day one of the 57th New York Film Festival. And we're launching this, uh, this new podcast every day during the festival. So be sure to tune in. We're going to try to start each day of the New York Film Festival's Film at Lincoln Center podcast with um, a conversation uh, before we go into a recorded discussion or Q&A from the festival. Today I'm joined by my colleague Florence Amosini. Hi, uh, nice to be here. Uh, Florence is one of three people on the selection committee of the festival and um, you've been on the committee for a few years now. Yeah, for a few years. You know. I st- I, I, it's, it's still an amazing um, position to be in. Uh, selecting what we consider the best film of the season or of the year, sometime yeah. of the decade, yeah. and to share it with an audience and with everyone here, it's really great. And I love uh, the edition of this year. I think it's really strong. Maybe just before we talk about some of the films that, that you can um, sort of share or or um, inform the audience about in this conversation, maybe just give us a couple of minutes of understanding of how the process works. You start watching films uh, way back at the beginning of the year, uh, sometimes at Sundance, sometimes at the festival in Berlin. Uh, we have films dating back to Berlin this yeah, year. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. I mean, it, we never stop watching films, right. um, but it, we really, really start with Berlin, even though sometimes we do have movies from Sundance. It just depends on the distribution, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but technically, we start with Berlin and... Uh, main uh, bulk of the films will come from Cannes. And Florence is the Associate Director of Programming here at Film at Lincoln Center. And as you said, you're watching films throughout the year to consider for uh, various festivals, various series. Is there is there something unique or specific that makes a good New York Film Festival film? What makes a good New York Film Festival movie? I think it's a movie that will get everyone on the committee excited, even so we have um, different tastes and uh, we look for uh, different voices um, in representation in cinema. Um, but when all of us come across as excited by uh, something we see and be moved by images, uh, we know that we need to share this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we convince each other sometimes of, um, you know, because we don't always have exactly the same taste, and that's what makes it interesting, uh, in discussion uh, about movies and try to convince your colleague that, no, that's a must film, that's a, like a must-see film. But I think what makes it interesting for the festival, it's really like the art of cinema. Uh, it's uh, a vision and images that will stay in you for more than you know, two hours of the film. It's like it stays in you for a long, long time. You've been, a, you've been a programmer here at Lincoln Center for a number of years, and you've been a curator programmer here in New York for many years. Uh, you worked at BAM, also BAM Cinematheque. Um, is there something specific about New York audiences also that, that, um, that you, you think about when you're, when you're looking at festival, you're traveling to festivals around the world or looking for films? What is it that, you, that, you, that is specific about a New York audience that you think uh, oh. affects your decision-making process? I mean, I've, I've lived in New York for over 20 years, but I also travel back and forth with France and I, I've lived in different countries. So I, I realize that audiences are very different from each places. I think New York audiences are particularly sophisticated because they have access to a lot of different um, movies, different countries, uh, different way of seeing films, wherever it's at on the Upper West Side or in Brooklyn. And they're f- very well aware of what's been um, going on in the industry. So they expect a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they really want the best experience watching a film and getting to talk to a director. 
So it's something that's always in the back of my mind. Like, is it like high quality enough? And will it stand like the crucial eyes of this difficult audience to please? Uh, and and I think it's it's actually actually exciting to program this way because you you really have to go for the best because you know the audience expects the best from you. And you're you're building on the tradition of the festival itself, which is obviously 50, 57 years old this year. Uh, when did you start attending the New York Film Festival? Uh, I think the first year I came here was the year of the last one um <laughs> really interesting choice for an opening night. Uh, Dancer in the, the dark. dark. <laughs> full at the beginning, a little less full at the end. It was a it was a weird choice for an opening night film because it was such a dark movie. Uh, but I've been coming every year since. Uh, it was just I think I just arrived in the film industry in New York then, um, and I love the tradition of the New York Film Festival, which is to show like a lot of like foreign films, a lot of uh, authors, you know, starting from like the year of Buñuel to, mm-hmm. to today. And I think we try to keep that tradition to go for prestige, of course, but also to go for author and mm-hmm. someone like some complete film from some complete author. And I, I, I really love that tradition that we're not scared of like foreign films or difficult films or long films. Uh, having Roma last year, I think was like, really really huge step in the in the festival it was an amazing film and and it's great to continue this this year well if there's any um if there's any proof needed that we're not afraid of long films we're opening this year's festival with the irishman and also with a filmmaker who has a really long history with this festival um our colleague jordan who's here with us recording this podcast um tipped us off that i guess the first time that scorsese was in this festival was in 1970 with a documentary called street scenes um he's had uh, certainly um a long history even in recent years um there was a surprise screening of hugo a few years ago um, this year we have The Irishman, which is um, his his epic length, rather somber kind of look back at um, the life of a mafia guy um, who who is who is kind of played by Robert De Niro, who's kind of looking back at um, many different uh, periods of his life, and famously the film uses some some digital de aging techniques to. Um, to capture De Niro and Joe Pesci and Al Pacino and other characters um, at different stages of their life, uh, sometimes looking a lot younger, sometimes looking a lot older. So uh, surely that'll be um, something people will be talking about as we go into this to this first weekend. And we're obviously looking forward to Scorsese's on cinema conversation on Saturday uh, with Kent Jones. But putting that aside, there's going to be a lot of conversation about The Irishman, um, I'm sure, for the next uh, few weeks or a few months. But maybe we could talk about some of the other films that are coming um, this weekend or some of the films that you might want to highlight, Florence, films that uh, people should either make sure to, to catch, maybe some films that they should... Uh, get out there and get tickets to this weekend? Something that you feel really strongly about? Well, I feel strongly about, like, nearly every film in the festival. Uh, I said nearly, but yeah, I, I mean... You're not going to tell us the ones you don't feel strongly no, about? No, people will have to catch me in the hallway in between okay. and see if I'm smiling or not. <laughs> but I do really like... Um, some movies that are like pretty by pretty well established author, like I think Parasite by uh, Bong Joon Ho is really amazing. I absolutely love Pan and Glory by Pedro Almodovar. Mm. Uh, I think these are maybe the most expected films, but I would really like to recommend um, 
a few other titles from different countries and uh, maybe authors not as well known. Uh, Martin Eden by Pietro Marcello, but we show, we showed his previous film in uh, New Director, New Films, and maybe uh, Art of the Real. is is a really interesting um, f- younger Italian director who works with um, the medium in a in a beautiful way, beautiful way. And uh, Martin Eden is an adaptation of uh, Jack London's um, book of the same name. It's 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 uh, really a beautiful epic film. Um, the, with a strong narrative, but not just linear. And it kind of sat in the Italian in the 70s with a way of working around the time structure that's, that's really moving. Um, I really, really recommend Martin Eden. It's one of the highlights of the year for me. So Martin Eden uh, is playing in the middle weekend of the festival, uh, October 6th in Alice Tilly Hall uh, at 2.30, and on Monday, October 7th at 8.45 p.m. in the Walter Reed. Uh, I also love to recommend Synonyms by uh, Nadav Lapid, um, third film by an Australian director. This one is set in France um, and talks about um, problem of, you know, different problems of masculinity, problems of uh, location and identifying yourself with a country and disidentifying yourself with a country. It, and it's it's remarkable. It's it's also one of the highlights of the year, maybe of the decade for me. I love his previous film, mm. but I think Synonym is really, really, really an extra huge step forward uh, for Nadav. And I love for people to see this film. This, so this is a film that um, it's playing on uh, this Sunday, 2.45 p.m. at Alice Tilly Hall. And second screening is on October 1st on Tuesday at 8.30. Uh, this was a film that uh, you and Dennis, uh, Dennis Lim, who's our director of programming, I believe you saw in Berlin. I remember after you guys got back, you, you were um, uh, championing this movie way back in February. Correct. And uh, we've been thinking about it ever since. So I'm really excited that we finally coming to the screen here. Uh, I'll be rewatching it uh, with every possible opportunity to rewatch films here. It's great. Uh, I also would like to mention a French film called Sibyl uh, by um, a younger French female director, uh, Justine Trier. It's her third film also. She was uh, previously uh, shown in uh, Rendezvous with French Cinema. And also this movie premiered in Cannes. uh, And it's a really strong performance by Virginie Fira, who's a very well-known actress in France. She had a small role in Paul Verhoeven, Elle. And mm. she's the star of the next Verhoeven film, uh, Benedita. It, it's a very interesting and complex way um, to show a woman lost in her personal and professional life. It's also extremely funny with uh, great parts by uh, Sandra Muller from Tony Erdman. It's it's extremely layered and it's very well written. It's great. She's a, she, Justine has a great way of directing people and, and pushing themselves like out of her like mold. I love the film. I think it's it's light, it's fun, it's enjoyable, but it has a darkness into it. But it's not something I see like so often. So I'm really glad we're showing Civil. Then what else? Um, We have other sections out of Men's Late. So I would like to mention um, in the documentary spotlight. State Funeral is a new documentary by a really great uh, Ukrainian uh, director, uh, Sergei Lonitsa. It's a very interesting uh, montage of of archive footage of the funeral of Stalin. Mm -hmm. So it's two hours of... This montage that will show you the grief affected or real by people um, 
following the funeral of Stalin, and it goes in evolving the world where you, a country will be under the image of a leader and dictatorship. And to see this today, um, it's, it's a fairly good reminder of what can happen very easily in a country. Uh, and it's also actually very beautifully uh, edited mm -hmm. and, and set. And it, the two hours really flew by. And it's incredible to just look at Beers today. I mean, I love the film. I love the way Sergei makes also fiction and nonfiction. I love this previous documentary. And I think this one is really, really amazing. Even just the story, uh, even if you only were to focus on some of the faces you see in the film, the, the, the reactions and what those, what those faces and reactions tell us about, about the history and about the experience. I mean, the collective grief displayed in that film is, is really incredible. And when you, uh, you would see how people uh, in Russia react to the about Stalin and that they still support Stalin proactively despite the the killings, the mass killings, mm -hmm. the famines in Ukraine and, mm -hmm. and all this, and to go back uh, and seeing this is, is really remarkable. Yeah. So people have a chance to check this out. Um, and so that film is on the 28th and the 29th. That's the Saturday and Sunday, uh, 5.45 on Saturday in the Reed and uh, 12.30 in the Beale on Sunday. And we have a lot of different sections that uh, show our love for cinema from every age and every era. I'd love to talk a little bit about the revival section, yeah. um, in which we have uh, Satan Tango by Bellator, much longer than The Irishman, because it's over seven hours. <laughs> I've seen this film before, <laughs> only once on a big screen. I think it was at MoMA maybe 10 years ago here in New York. I and, saw uh, it at MoMA too. We were probably screening. at the same screening. <laughs> yes. um, there's two intermissions in this film. It's a spectacular movie. It's hard to it's hard to really convey what um, an experience people are in for when they commit to seeing a film of this length. But um, but it's it's one of the most distinctive, I think, cinematic experiences I've ever had. Tell us about what this film means to you. Well, I I that movie in a way changed uh, one of my vision of cinema because yeah. I did not realize you could make a movie of seven hours where you're so engrossed in um, you know one image that goes on for so long um, and the end of an, uh, a world with people all around um, I don't know it's just it's also a striking black and white and it's been restored by Arbilus so I hope that people will have a chance to see um, this if not in the festival because I believe it's sold out uh, we are bringing it back after the festival and opening it um, on October 18th. October 18th, it opens yeah. theatrically here for a, for a limited run. Um, the film is sold out here at the festival, and I'm trying not to be too loud with turning of pages because I know my colleague Jordan here will get mad at me. But um, but I wanted to look up and on page 40 of our program book. Uh, the screening is on Sunday the 29th at noon, and even though it is sold out and it's in a small screening room, um, there may be a chance to get in on a standby line if you're determined to yeah. see it this weekend. It's, it's not an easy movie to schedule because of the running time. So even when you're bringing back, it's still only one show a day. <laughs> 432 minutes, um, but it's truly one of the most riveting um, 432 minutes you can imagine. And um, I mean, it's just, it's an iconic film. Um, what else? We also have um, some film by Bunuel. Bunuel is always great. So we have um, a beautiful restoration of L'Age d'Or. It's a French film from the 30s. Um, I saw the restoration in Bologna and I was... I then realized that I thought I've seen Lash Door before, but I actually never really did see Lash Door. Is it a different mostly, version or something? I or you... never heard Lash Door because uh, the, 
the movie when the movie came out, it was um, in theater for a while until you got attacked by the right wing um, militia, and then they they banned it for until the eighties. So I did see some version of it, but you couldn't really hear anything. And so I saw the film, but I would never really realize what was happening. So the imagery is great. But the restoration done by Cinémathèque Française actually cleared the sound in an amazing way. And finally, really saw what people have seen with Lash Door. Uh, it was uh, Buñuel's second film after um, uh, um, Le Chien Andalou. And it was also like sponsored by the, some counts and rich people like from the nobility in France who gave him money to make an anti uh, bourgeoisie and nobility film, which mm -hmm. was pretty interesting. And they loved the film and they loved working on it, but it did ruin his career for a good, like, over 10 years where he could not make another film after that. This is the Bunuel mm -hmm. film from 1930, and he uh, co-wrote the screenplay with Salvador Dali. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, well, if you've, if, even if people have seen it, they may not have seen it they have not the way seen they it they the way we can see it, <laughs> and we not heard it. So that's this Sunday, uh, the 29th, <laughs> at 7.15 in the Walter Reed. Yeah. Um, I think that, uh, just to maybe mention one other film that I want to make sure to put in a plug for, because um, I think it's worth uh, worth seeing on the opening night of the festival, on the second night of the festival, I should say, on the 28th, we have the new film from Kelly Reichert no, called beautiful. First Cow, uh, a really stunning uh, kind of um film about these two guys in the Oregon Territory and this kind of relationship that builds and grows out in the middle of nowhere uh, and the relationship that they have with this uh, terrific cow. Beautiful eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was cast from her eyes. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, it's a terrific film. I mean, Kelly is such a distinctive American uh, director, and I think that it's a film that has played at a couple of festivals, or maybe at least Telluride earlier I this fall. I think only Telluride. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I think it's a film that maybe people have, are starting to hear about, but it hasn't quite um, gotten enough attention yet, and I hope people will get a chance to uh, to check out First Cow this weekend. I hope so. I mean, also, Kelly doesn't make a lot of films. Uh, she takes her time between films, and it, it really shows because they're uh, so beautifully made uh, and and mesmerizing and some people noted we don't have a lot of American uh, films in men's slate this year it turns out that you know we don't make the film we show what we see but the film by Kelly is just so extraordinary that we were really really glad to be able to share it and and Kelly is one of the filmmakers and one of the um, guests who will be participating in our free talk series, which um, which will launch this weekend, and she'll be doing an extended conversation uh, next week. I believe it's Friday evening in the amphitheater. Our, all of our evening talks at seven o'clock in the amphitheater are free. Um, well, why don't we wrap up this conversation for now? And um, you know, we'll we'll be talking every day about uh, films in this year's festival with different guests. Um, but to sort of kick off this. This podcast at the New York Film Festival, we're going to go to uh, our colleague Dennis Lim, who um, yesterday moderated a Q&A or conversation at the press conference with Pedro Almodovar and Antonio Banderas. Uh, Florence, thank you. Thank you so much. It was and great talking. Great talking with you. And we'll go now to the conversation with Dennis, Pedro, and Antonio. Thank you. I think they liked it. Uh, so in addition to this extraordinary film, uh, Pedro designed the, the festival um, poster this year, um, which is beautiful. So we want to thank him for that as well. 
Um, Carla is here uh, to help with translation. Um, I'm just going to start with a question um, for Pedro. Uh, I think I have to start with the obvious question here. Uh, you have dealt with autobiography, or as as it's just, as it's referred to in the film, autofiction, uh, throughout your career, but I think never so uh, directly and provocatively as in this film. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about your approach to drawing on your own life, but not reflecting it directly, and, and how that was different for this film compared to some of your other works that draw on your life as well. I think my entire biography is actually told in the 21st films that, that I've done before this one. But I'm actually really reflected in kind of an oblique way because I, I'm actually standing behind characters that are perhaps women or that are not even film directors. But really, this is the first time that I, uh, that I took the reference of myself. Uh, and I look at myself um, and every research that I did uh, for the script, it was inside me. So, you know, it's a, it's a question that um, is not exactly an autobiography, but, uh, but in any case, I'm reflected uh, in a more intimate way in this movie, uh, more than in anyone. So, uh, because today, for example, a journalist asked me about the, the spectator, if they should see, if they should think that I'm watching Pedro's life, or if I mind that, or, or if, and then, you know, I really, I mean, the spectator is free, and what I, what I try is that, uh, that the spectator should be moved uh, and, uh, and understand the story that I'm telling. For me, it's not that important if they think that I'm talking about me or this is my portrait of Nat. Because in the process of writing, uh, at the beginning, I was thinking about myself. And also in the following you know, pages, uh, I was always present. But there is a moment like when you are like in the 20, uh, page, 20 pages of the script that um, everything you, you are writing is mixed with fiction. And there is a moment uh, beyond that when you are... Uh, when you're about three-quarters of the way through the script. Uh, then the fiction is who, uh, it rules the narration. Uh, and reality disappears. And, you know, in that moment, uh, I need to be, or I need to feel believable, but in a cinematic way, even that it doesn't represent reality. So, you know, um, my life um, the, uh, is completely mixed with fiction. And when I say my life is not my proper life, uh, and also when I think, when I say that I'm very familiar, everything is, that appears in the movie is very familiar to me, it's because I also, I, I made mine the memories of everyone around me. I mean, in the movie, sometimes uh, I, stole memories of my sisters, of my brother, of some friends, or they are the period that I was living. So everything is familiar to me, but it doesn't mean that I lived everything that is in the movie. Actually, there are many things that I, that I never experienced. I mean, I didn't live in a, when I was a kid in a cave. Uh, <laughs> no, but I know uh, the feeling of that guy. 
because we move up, we migrate from, from La Mancha to Extremadura. And I know what it means to just to leave your hometown and to go to another place in a precarious way. Uh, I never felt in love when I was a kid of a painter and builder, but I could. Uh, I, I mean, I, at that moment I knew uh, about what, what, what was my sexuality at that moment. Uh, so I, I never, I never uh, do or had um, a heroin experience. But, you know, in, during the 80s, I was surrounded by many close friends that they were into that. So I know I have enough information about that. Uh, some other things are completely part of my life. Uh, for example, uh, la, la escena de la mortaja. Uh, the scene where we're preparing the, the mother for death, where she talks about her death. Eh, la experiencia también de tener que, que cortar de tajo un amor cuando todavía estaba viva la pasión. And the experience of also having to end an affair when passion was still alive and well. Pero, pero por ejemplo, no, no, no he tenido la experiencia de, de que ese amor volviera 32 años después. And I haven't had the experience of that love returning 32 years pero later. Esa es la buena parte de la ficción, que puedes escribirlo y vivirlo a través de los actores. And that's the nice thing about fiction, is that you can write it and then experience it through the actors. And I enjoyed very much that meeting. I loved them. <laughs> but I didn't experience it in my life. But you know, you know, the, 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 I experienced in the shooting which is like a parallel life for me. So I wanted to bring uh, Antonio into this discussion and um, this idea of playing a character that is on some level rooted in Pedro's life. And there are many aspects about Salvador that invite us to, to think about Pedro, hair, wardrobe among them. Uh, and, uh, but there are other things that are clearly not. Um, and can you say a little bit about developing this character and making it a fully inhabited character and not, not in any way an imitation? Well, uh, first of all, you know, uh, we've been friends for uh, almost 40 years now, and uh, we've done eight movies together. And, but we have a relationship, our friendship has uh, certain boundaries in a way. You know, Pedro is a very, very private person. I never try just to, uh, you know, trespass those boundaries uh, was being always very respectful to his uh, private life. So it was surprising to me when I uh, read the script for the first time because there were some confessions done there, um, certain aspects of his personality that, uh, that I didn't know. I didn't know that he wanted to close certain circles in his life that were open, certain wounds, uh, uh, you know, with uh, the mother, with uh, actors, with uh, cinema, with life itself, with an ex-boyfriend. Um, so it, it was surprising. And then immediately it came to me pretty much what he was just explaining before, you know, there are certain areas of the movie that are real and certain areas that are fictional. But then the next thought in my mind, it may not coincide with him, but uh, is this, are we only the things that we have done and that we have said? or we are also the things that we wanted to say and we never said, the things that we wanted to do and we never did. And I think in, the, in this case, this uh, Pedro Almodovar's movie is more Almodovar than Almodovar. 
<laughs> because in a way he, he completes certain areas of that puzzle of his life by making this film. And you know, I felt I felt used in a very beautiful way to just establish certain um, reconciliation with his life and coming to terms with himself. And that was it was a beautiful side of the movie uh, for me. Though I attacked the character also, uh, you know, using some personal experiences too. The um, the events in the film sort of uh, begin with the filmmaker character Salvador revisiting a film um, that he made 32 years earlier. And I'm wondering if the two of you talked about films that you worked on together. I'm thinking in particular of Law of Desire, which is actually a film from exactly 32 years ago. Um, in which, <laughs> as it happens, coincidentally, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and that is a film that has some some similarities with this one. Uh, you know, Sabor is is a is a wonderful name. It's a wonderful word, and it's a wonderful title too. Uh, I remember uh, an American writer called Lucia Berlin. Uh, in uncollected uh, storybooks, um, he was almost bilingual because he was teaching Spanish in Mexico and in other places. And um, uh, she make she make a commentary about the Spanish, the Spanish language, and she talk about a, a bolero, a song, a torchon called "Sabor a Mí," um, which is like taste of me, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And she was fascinated that there is a language where the people has tienen sabor. Have taste. Porque en la lengua, en la lengua, en el inglés, eso es imposible. Because in English that is impossible, because you're actually talking about the person, him or himself tasting as something. Mm. Eh, nosotros sí tenemos esa posibilidad. Todo tiene sabor en la lengua española. But in Spanish we do have that possibility. Everything has, if you like, a taste, a flavor. Todo lo que está vivo. Everything that's alive. Y yo me refiero, yo creo que al sabor de, de dos amantes. And in that I'm, I'm referring to the flavor of two lovers. Eh, o sea, todos los sentidos nos recuerdan a la persona que hemos amado, pero aquí hablo, no es un amor de caníbales. Exactamente, pero eh, me refiero al sabor de otra persona. And I'm referring to sort of the, all the senses are involved in, in the love of another person, and I'm not talking about them being uh, can cannibals, for example, uh, but it, we're talking about sort of everything that reminds you of that other person. But it's true that uh, the period uh, when that happened, uh, when the monologue happens, and the, and the relation with the actor, it was exactly that period, 85, 86, when I was doing Matador of Low Desire. So, because uh, the three male characters, Antonio, Antonio's, and also Federico's, and the, and the actor, uh, these three male characters, they were shaped in the, in the decade of the 80s. Mm -hmm. So, they belong to that period, very hedonistic, full of freedom, because it was immediately after the, the Franco's died and the democracy came to, 
uh, to Spain. So um, they are very representative uh, of that decade. Um, and for me, you know, that moment, uh, it was full, full of, when I say freedom, freedom in every senses. Uh, of course, sexual freedom, and of course, there were a lot of drugs uh, around us. Uh, you know, all that, all the things that we we couldn't experience before, just immediately before that. Uh, Pedro, I'm wondering if you can say a bit about the structure of the film. Um, I, I think, especially in your you know, later films, we've seen um, a lot of many of your work, actually, many of your films moving away from just a, a straightforward linear um, structure. And this one especially seems to have this very um, kaleidoscopic um, structure that moves around in, in time and uses you know, memory as a, as a principle um, for organizing the film. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how, whether this, stru this structure is something that emerges from you as you write, or do you play around with it as you edit? Uh no, viene cuando la estructura siempre es el resultado del guión. The structure is always a result of the script. Y no siempre corresponde con el primer borrador del guión. And it's not always there from the very first draft of the script. Eh, suele ser en las sucesivas repeticiones. It's once I repeat the various drafts that then the structure comes. Cuando eliges la en la historia que quieres contar, el modo y el modo que quieres contarlo. Once you decide which story is the one you want to tell and how it is that you want to tell it. En el caso de Pain and Glory, la estructura llegó, no quiero parecer taqui, pero llegó con un movimiento que se parece mucho a la corriente del agua, and de un modo natural y fluido. Yeah, the structure for Pain and Glory, and I don't want to sound tacky, but it came sort of from the idea of flowing water. If I sound water. tacky, it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> it came from the idea of flowing water. Uh, so I, I start writing uh, this sequence, um, the very first sequence, when he's under the water, where because of the ungravity, he's in the best situation of the day, because there is not any muscle tension. And this is something that I used to do the, the, the summertime uh, when I was before starting writing. And uh, after doing it every day, then I, I asked someone to make a picture of me in that situation because I thought, you know, I mean, for, in, in one hand, you just live your life. Very close to that, you think like a filmmaker. So immediately, immediately after being uh, having this kind of pleasure, I thought, mm, this is a good starting. This is a good image for a movie. I wanted to be sure, and then I asked someone to take a picture of me uh, down the water, and all, I found it interesting. So I started writing why he is like that, why the, the big uh, scarf, and, and then, you know, the, just the, 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 the water drives me to another uh, water, which is the river. Uh, and then immediately appears just the memory of my childhood uh, when I was with my mother and the neighbors uh, wasn't in the river. Um, immediately after, I took the same character in the same hotel uh, that has the swimming pool. Uh, and then I was keeping on with this contemporary uh, character and reflecting myself. And um, uh, when I, just with the river, when I discovered 
that I could alternate my contemporary life with the memories of my childhood, that gave me immediately esta alternancia eh, me dio inmediatamente la llave para o la clave para poder continuar escribiendo. That back and forth then is really what gave me the key that allowed me to then continue writing. Porque yo no quería hacer una película sobre alguien que se queja de los dolores que tiene. Because I, didn't re I really didn't want to make a movie about someone who's just complaining about the pain that they're suffering. Ni, eh, ni quería sobre la soledad del personaje de Antonio, eh, sobre su aislamiento, etc. Nor did I want to write a movie about Antonio's character's uh, solitude or his, or his um, uh, sort of um, uh, isolation. Eh, al aparecer de un modo natural, eh, en mi infancia encontré que esa alternancia era la clave para la historia. So when the connection, a very natural connection to the memories of my childhood came up, I realized that that would be the most natural way to tell the story. Porque por un lado nos da mucha información acerca del niño que fue. Because it gives us a lot of information about the boy he once was. Eh, y, y sobre todo eh, me permite eh, introducir la luz y el barroquismo de una infancia como la que él tuvo. And it allows me to sort of introduce the light and the baroque character of the infancy that he had. Incluso para mí eh, es muy importante al final, o sea, descubrir que estas memorias de su infancia en un determinado momento le salvan de la situación que está viviendo. And it's very important for me, for example, to discover by the end that these memories that he's having actually come to save him from the moment that he's living. Porque su dependencia no es de la heroína. Because his addiction is not to heroin. Eh, su auténtica adicción es al hecho de hacer películas. His actual addiction is to making films. Y el mayor de los dolores que siente es eh, la impresión de que físicamente no está preparado a volver a rodar nunca más. And the biggest pain he's actually feeling is that sensation that he has that he's never going to be able to shoot again. Por eso además en el hecho de tomar heroína hay un sutil elemento de, de suicidio. So there's something in his taking heroin that there's, there's an element of suicide, a wish subtle. for suicide, a subtle. Eh, o sea, cuando un hombre de 60 años empieza a tomar heroína, es consciente de que está corriendo a un grave riesgo. Yes, because when a man who's in his 60s decides he's going to take heroin, he's quite conscious of the fact that he's taking a risk. Y a él no le importa. And he doesn't care. Eh, y lo que salva al personaje es cuando llega a sus manos eh, la, la acuarela So, y con la acuarela llega el recuerdo de cómo fue hecha. So when what really saves him is when he receives the watercolor and then when he receives the watercolor he remembers how that watercolor was made. Eh, por primera vez en los últimos cuatro años siente la la necesidad rotunda de contar esa historia. And so for the first time in four years he he feels the absolute need to tell that story. Entonces inmediatamente cuando llega a su casa empieza a escribir febrilmente. So when he returns home he starts writing like a madman. En ese momento él está salvado porque tiene desea una, desea contar una historia. And at that point he has saved himself because he now wishes, desires to write a story. Entonces esa pasión que hacía tiempo que no la sentía es lo que realmente salva al personaje. And that passion which he had not felt in many years is really what saves the, the character. Okay, um, I'm going to open it up in a minute. I'm just going to ask one question to both of you. Um, as you mentioned, Antonio, the two of you have a working relationship that spans decades in, in many films. Um, although there was a period um, of, I think, maybe 20 years where you were not working together. I'm wondering if you can just compare the working relationship on this film 
versus you know when you first started working together? How has your working relationship changed? Uh, he have changed during all these years, and and especially I think he has changed in two different periods. Um, when I re-encountered with Pedro as a director actor, because we have been friends for all of these years, but uh, it was in the Skina Eleven. It was nine years ago, and I arrived to the project uh, after 22 years without working together, uh, you know, trying to show him that actually I learned a lot <laughs> during all of those years, that I just uh, got a new way to just uh, act, that I got, uh, you know, more experience in front of the camera, that I was more self-assured in front of it. Uh, there's a number of things, and I put them on the table, and I said, this is what I am now. And, uh, and, and so uh, after a week of rehearsals, he, <laughs> he said to me, um, you know, Antonio, all of these things that you're bringing with you now, uh, I cannot use them, really. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, and he made uh, a very interesting question that uh, has been floating in my, in my mind for nine years. He says, where are you? And so at that time, um, you can take you know, that thing and you can react against that thing in many different ways. Uh, but at that time I said, oh, why is it so hard? You know, I mean, I have my experience, I'm gonna just put it there. I have this idea of what the character should be. And my idea and his ideas didn't coincide all the time. So we shoot the movie, there was a certain tension by the time that we were shooting the movie. Never was dramatic because we are friends among other things, you know. But something happened, you know, when I saw the movie with an audience for the first time, it was in the Toronto Film Festival. And I, I was watching the movie and I was thinking, oh my God, how he managed to actually take a character from the inside of me that I didn't even know I had. And then I, I started a process of being humble and thinking I have to actually open my ears and my eyes and my soul to people that I trust. And I do trust him. I don't feel only love for Pedro because, which is what I do, I feel love because he's my friend, but I admire him and I respect him. And I was thinking, am I gonna have another opportunity in my life to actually, you know, uh, start the process of making a movie with him in a completely different way? And that came nine years after. So when I received Pain and Glory, I saw that opportunity. And in the middle of those nine years, a lot of things happened. And I had a heart attack two and a half years ago that actually positioned me in a completely different way, in, in the way that, that, because I am, as an artist, as I am as a person. And that thing brought to me um, a way to look at life in a different way. I saw death very close, and the important things really came to the surface, and all those things that I thought they were important, but they weren't, they just sunk. They went to hell. And he detected that. As soon as I, we were at the rehearsal time, he said, I don't know, I don't know how to describe this thing that happened to you after your cardiac event, but it's something that I would like to use for your character, so don't hide it. Don't try just to overcome yourself and just present yourself at the Antonio Banderas that everybody knows, more athletic and more that. No, this is good. This is good, use it. 
And I, I started using it and I started going from the scratch. I didn't want to use all the tools that I have been using for acting in the last 10, 15 years. I was just trying to descend with two different questions, very clear questions and very simple ones. What do you want to tell? What is the story that you want to tell and why you call me to do it? And uh, from the beginning, we start solving these two questions and we created a character that actually was different to anything that I have done before in my life. It has to do with another space, another universe of my acting career that I didn't know. Um, it was very frightening for moments because I was not allowed to use my tricks. I was just searching in, in some other fields. And, uh, but at the end, we both got in the mud together. And that is the space where we could create something that is worth while, you know, for both of us. So it has been probably the most interesting work of my life. And I open my eyes really for, for the future in a completely different way, you know. You know, sometimes a heart attack is one of the best things that can happen in your life. <laughs> No, pues es, I mean, it, it is true that I saw one picture of Antonio after the heart attack, uh, and I saw just a mask of pain. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I felt sorry for him, uh, but uh, as I was thinking about him as the protagonist of this movie, Pain and Glory, then uh, es que resulta muy duro decir que que ese ataque al corazón a mí me venía bien como director, pero es cierto it's, que era así. It's, it's very hard to say that his heart attack actually was really good for me as a director, but the truth is that's how it was. No, quiero, quiero, quiero decir que la experiencia en el dolor de Antonio y que, y que estaba muy presente en esa foto me indicaba lo apropiado eh, que era llamarle. And what I really mean is when I saw that picture of him and I could really read pain in his face, I realized that it was really appropriate for me to be able to reach out and, and call him. Porque lo último que uno piensa de Antonio es en el sufrimiento. Because the last thing you think about when you think of Antonio is suffering. Eh, quiero decir, es una persona tan llena de vida, tan intensa en todo lo que hace, o sea, eh, lo que aquí llamáis bravura, que le ha caracterizado en todos sus personajes, que no es la imagen que uno tiene de alguien doliente que está en su casa eh, pegado a la cama o a la mesa de escritorio de su casa. So, because really the image that you have of Antonio, especially here in this, in, in this country, is of someone who's alive, who's intense, what you call bravura, uh, and you don't really think of someone who's laying, laid out in pain in his bed next to his, his, his bed stand. Eh, eh, naturalmente, él, él conocía muchas de las partes que del guión eh, las reconocía porque las había vivido de cerca. And he of course understood a lot of the things that were in the script because he had lived through them. Eh, pero eh, yo le dije, eh, when I said to him just before shooting, this is something that I never allowed to anyone in my career. But what Antonio, if you need to imitate me in some moment because this is the easier way for you to do it, then you have my permission to do it. And he answered me that he prefers not. And I was happy because I, you know, it's very weird uh, just to, to, to have someone in front of you that it is imitating you. So uh, I absolutely prefer that way. So, I mean, I have to say that when I was shooting, I didn't have the feeling that I was like shooting about my life. I have a big distance. Uh, and I was a director, 
Ed, directing an actor, and even the, the house. It was a replica of my own, the, the own place that I'm living. I, I, for me, it was very clear when I was in the studio shooting and when I was at home. Uh, I never confused that. Um, and uh, only, I mean, I, I asked him because it was important uh, for the spectator to see that this man has a big problem uh, in the back for the surgery. Then uh, I told him, well, and I did it before, uh, look at me when I'm entering a taxi and how, <laughs> uh, how I get out. Because it's not the normal way. It is very apparatoso. It's sort of very clumsy and cumbersome. And, then, uh, and this is the only, the only moment when he really had to imitate me uh, because that gives uh, clear information about his back. And also when he's trying to look for something in the floor, uh, he never go directly to the floor. Uh, he used to put a pillow and after just take it. You know, this is a kind of physical information about his condition. But the rest that I was, I, I, I must say that I was the first one to be amazed by the performance of Antonio. Uh, he changed completely. Uh, comparing to the other movies that we did together. Uh, and uh, doing something completely new. Mm, and, I, and even without my explanation. And I think that Antonio, well, he's present here, but anyway, uh, this is what I really think. He has an incredible capacity to be impregnate, in this case of me. And... Uh, and even that, that, that process was perhaps unconscious. Uh, but you know what happens, it was the opposite of what happened in real life, uh, that I see myself imitating him in some, moment, some moments of the movie. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, and I discovered that because, for example, I give you an example. When you are waiting uh, at the door for your former lover, Federico, you, you just make very small gesture of being impatient and waiting. Uh, I love that, and I do it sometimes, <laughs> just being myself, After you saw being the myself through Antonio. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, I found it that I, I love to be the person that he was um, performing that it was not exactly me. But uh, I love that. So the, the case now is that and in, in different cases, in different moments, that uh, I, I am imitating him, him um, in the movie, trying to be myself. <laughs> OK, we're going to take a couple of questions. Uh, yeah, right there. Can you tell us what were the most important films when you were a boy? What were the films that affected you the most and, and, and transformed you? You know, during uh, early 60s and late 50s that I was living in a very small town, you know, they, they used to, to, to show many, many spaghetti westerns. That it was not exactly the best formation uh, for a director. But also at the same time, I could see Berman's movie. I remember uh, with my brother to go to see 
de Fountain, el manantial de la doncella, de Fountain Virgin. The Virgin Spring. Virgin Springs eh, at the age of 10. And some movies, we, all, we also saw many movies from Mexico. Very, eh, I mean, fantasy, science fiction, general movies. Eh, but also, I mean, mixed with that, eh, very kids and camp movies. Eh, they mixed also the Mexican period of Buñuel. And then, very young, at that age of 10 to 12, I could see El Ángel Exterminador, eh, eh, Ensayo para un Crimen, La Vida de Archivaldo de la Cruz. This, yeah. this has two different names. It's the Exterminating uh, Angel and um, Archibaldo, the, death, the Death of Archivaldo The Cruz. Life of Archivaldo de la Cruz. Or in, in Spain, we call it Ensayo para un Crimen, which is the rehearsal for a crime. And, uh, and curious, I mean, curiously, this is the part of the filmography of Buñuel that is my favorite, uh, the, Mexican, uh, the, the Mexican films. And, and also, I used to see many of uh, Elia Kazan or Tennessee Williams um, adaptations uh, to, uh, to the cinema that also impressed me a lot. Uh, because, you know, I mean, for example, I, 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 I made the mention of Splendor in the Grass. You know, at that moment, when I, when I saw Asaki Splendor in the Grass, I thought that they were talking about me, that they were talking about the type of living that I have to, to do uh, in, in, in that rural place. Uh, because, uh, porque vivíamos bajo esa misma vigilancia que la que, de la que vive Natalie Wood. Because we lived under that same sort of, you know, what will people say, vigilance that Natalie Wood is, is submitted to. O sea, la misma opresión por, sobre todo, en la, por el que dirán los demás. Yes, so the same kind of oppression around the worry about what will people say. Y la misma represión sexual. And the same kind of sexual repression. Y sobre todo la represión en general acerca de cualquier tipo de actitud libre. And repression in general towards any kind of uh, liberatory attitude. You know, I was really, I mean, I was a kid at that moment. I was at, when, I, when Splendor, I was 12. And I thought uh, that, oh my God, this is the life that is waiting for me. Because um, I was very identified with uh, Warren Beatty's sister. Uh, the one that used to go every night with a lot of men, that drinks a lot. Uh, smoke a lot, and also uh, drives at an incredible speed. So uh, I thought, oh, I'm afraid that this girl <laughs> represents what will be my future. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the, it was this mixing of, uh, of some camp movies, very bad movies, but funny movies, or sometimes I remember also when I was 14, I remember very well the, the night that I saw uh, uh, The Night, La Notte, by Michelangelo Antonioni. And even they are not especially like uh, kids' movies, but uh, not at all. I mean, just the opposite. <laughs> but I always have a link with these movies. You know, uh, in La Noche, Antonioni habla sobre. 
eh, el aburrimiento en la sociedad, en la alta sociedad milanesa. En la nota, Antonioni está hablando de la boredom en la high society, high milanese society. Yo no conocía Milán, no sabía nada de esa sociedad, de la alta burguesía milanesa, pero sabía mucho del aburrimiento. And I did not know, I was never in Milan, I didn't know anything about the high bourgeoisie, but I knew a lot about boredom. Just living in that place. Uh, so that was the way for me to identify with the, uh, with, with the speech of Antonioni in La Notte. Uh, there was always um, a way for me uh, that included me in these difficult and very adult movies. So I was shaped uh, with spaghettis, western with awful, in the 50 eran las películas de las se llamaban eh, no rancheras las, las cabareteras sí las yeah, cabareteras the, the mexican cabaretera genre which is sort of the fallen woman genre eh, that it was a genre itself mm. but also Antonioni's movies and Orson Welles and eh, Elia Kazan and Buñuel a lot and yes when, when, I, when I went to Madrid that I was eh, 18 years old Then I start uh, going every day to the Cinematheque, and then it was when I could see every movie in a kind of, I'm not, not so casual way. Then I start uh, just watching the new wave, the new realism, uh, the German expressionism. I mean, and that was the Cinematheque was my real school at the moment. Basically everything. <laughs> Basically what? Everything. <laughs> Basically everything, yes. <laughs> I'm very eclectic. I have very, uh, un gusto muy eclectico. I have a very eclectic taste. Actually, yes. Peter is doing a talk on Sunday about on cinema and his favorite films. So that. Uh, oh yeah. Yes. We'll, we'll have more of it. We'll have more of it on Sunday. Um, I think we have time for only one final question. So um, let's go here. Since we're doing the Q&A, could you talk about the Q&A in the film? Uh, do you have anything to say about, you know, film restoration or, you know, the question that you hate in Q&A? Sí. Eh. <laughs> eh, pues, eh, yo estaba copiando algo, primeramente, que es la presencia eh, universal y absoluta del teléfono móvil. One of the things that I was copying or thinking about was the absolute Uh, ubiquitous presence of the cell phone in y, our lives. Y algo que ya había visto que, es, lo había, que lo habían hecho en algún programa de televisión española, de la televisión española, en realities, por ejemplo. And I had seen something like that in, in reality, in Spanish reality TV. Que encontraba especialmente de, de mal gusto y muy, muy taqui. That I found it to be a particularly bad taste and very, very taqui. Y es, y es cuando el, el periodista Naturalmente son eh, programas del corazón, lo que llamamos programas del corazón, tabloides. Eh, el periodista está recibiendo una llamada de alguien de quien está hablando y entonces lo pone en altavoz y lo pone cerca de su micrófono para que el resto del programa y el resto del país pueda oírlo. Lo cual me parece de pésimo gusto 
eh, pero me parecía que era muy cinematográfico. So, and, and this is sort of, again, in these kind of tacky programs, oftentimes sort of programs that deal with matters of the heart, uh, where the reporter actually has the person on the phone and it, he puts them close to the, the microphone so that the rest of the audience can hear it. And I think it's just uh, terrible and of terribly bad taste, but I thought it was very cinematographic. Um, no, I can say, a me, me inspira in la vida real, me inspira o lo mejor o lo peor de lo que veo y de lo que oigo. And, and so what actually inspires me in my real life is either the best of what I see or the worst of what I see. In this case, it's the worst of what I see. Um, and, and also, uh, Salvador is not, I mean, for that reason, the, the assistant is, is, is she, she, she feels strange that, and, that Salvador say that he will go uh, to the Q&A because from many years, I mean, her work He was just to say no to the interviews and all that. He became in the movie you're almost a misanthropist. Um, but also, is uh, in the case that they were very, very stone. Um, of course, uh, he didn't want uh, to be the president of anyone in that in that state. Um, but at the same time, él corresponde con las preguntas que empiezan a hacerle. O sea, se olvida del artificio que está utilizando. So at some point he sort of gets absorbed by the questions that they're asking him and he forgets about the artifice that, that he's involved in. Y el hecho de haber tomado drogas eh, le hace estar muy sincero y digamos menos controlado. And the fact that he's high makes him be extremely sincere and not as controlled. De, de ese modo, sin darse cuenta, empieza a hablar del personaje de Alberto y le dice a través de esa conversación, cosa que no, era algo que no tenía, que no, no era planeado, le dice eh, lo peor que podía escuchar eh, Alberto. And because he's high, he begins to speak quite sincerely and he be, begins to say things about Alberto who, which he otherwise would not have said and which, of course, Alberto did not quite need to hear. Entonces, toda la secuencia me sirve y también para darle un tono un poco más jocoso eh, a la situación pero es del modo en que, sin darse cuenta, se ve abocado a decirle por primera vez a Alberto por qué no le gustaba su actuación y que, misteriosamente, con el tiempo había mejorado. Cosa que es verdad que el tiempo influye en el modo de ver las películas. And so in this sort of very playful way, he's telling Alberto things that he wished he would have told him uh, and that are, of, of course, in fact, true, and especially the fact that his performance has gotten better over the years, which is also something that, that actually happens, that, this can, that, that a performance can get better uh, across the years. Por lo menos a mí me pasa, quiero decir, eh, con, no solo con mis películas, sino con las películas de los demás. And I actually have this experience not just with my films, but with other people's films as well. El tiempo es el peor enemigo de las, de las películas y la mejor medida. Uh, time is the worst, uh, is the worst friend of, of films, but also the best measure. Y yo le estoy muy agradecido al tiempo que ha respetado mis películas. And I'm very thankful to time that it's respected my films. Antonio, did you want to add anything about, about that scene? If I want to add something, yeah. um, well, no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's okay. I think I'm, you can tell everything, Antonio. No, but it's, I, I think it's, it's very clear um, that uh, for 40 years I have been uh, working with a person that I respect, that I admire, and, and I love, as I said to you before. Only these eight movies that I have done with Pedro Almodóvar justify a career. 
Uh, if I wouldn't have done anything else, I would be satisfied. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, both. It's an thank amazing you, performance you. and an amazing film. So thank you both for being here. And uh, thank you for being You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education curriculum and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.